Pillar Network will be launching its own podcast beginning the first week of April. Podcasts focus on lessons for planting and revitalizing churches, as well as common questions for pastoring. This will be done under a banner of Pillar's belief and DNA of biblical authority, gospel proclamation, live expository preaching, elder-led congregationalism, being confessionally baptistic, and kingdom-minded associating and cooperation for the starting and strengthening of churches to the ends of the earth. You'll hear more in the coming days about this podcast. And to find out more, go to thepillarnetwork.com. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast. I'm your host, Nate Aiken. And as always, we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And we're continuing a series on confessions. Uh, and we have uh, today uh, a, a guest who's been with us many times uh, and been on also some of our panels, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, author, podcaster, so much we can say. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, Nathan, good to be with you as always. And you obviously have done lots of work and thoughts on confessions. And so I've got a good number of questions. So I just want to jump right in. Are Baptists a confessional people? Well, you know, at least in terms of our history and heritage, Baptists have always been a confessional people, but they've not always been confessional in the same way, uh, to the same degree, with the same degree of self-consciousness, and uh, for that matter, of uh, uh, scrupulousness or uh, attentiveness. So uh, there has always been some kind of confessional background and going all the way back to the 17th century. But uh, the uh, the fact is that for Baptists, Confession tends to move in the foreground when necessary, and I think that's a fair way to describe our history. So there's some who have been in, in our midst, and, and even there's some confusion on this because this can be even be traced back to people outside of our tradition, but people in our tradition have owned it when they say things like, we have no creed but the Bible, or maybe they say something like, we have no creed but Christ. Can you talk to us about where does that come from? What does that mean? Is that helpful or unhelpful? Well, it comes in two directions, and both of them can be genetically traced. So the first one is the no creed but the Bible. Uh, that's Alexander Campbell. And that was an intentional effort with uh, Campbellite primitivism to say, you know, we are done with all of everything that uh, from the early church, from uh, Nicene, Constantinople, Ephesus, uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed, we want to do with none of that. This is the reestablishment of or the restoration is the word they use, uh, of the New Testament church. So all the rest of this was the church gone awry. And, uh, of course, that primitivist impulse is something you can kind of understand, but um, I'll just say it, it lacks all historical credibility, period, not to mention New mm -hmm. Testament support. But nonetheless, that's where that came from. And, you know, that's a very successful line. You know, it, that's, yeah. that, uh, that line is echoed, I think, uh, to negative effect all over the place. But if you're going to say no creed but the Bible, you know, and, and let's just say, if you're going to say that as someone of a basic conservative disposition, then you're actually being dishonest because you're assuming an entire interpretive history mm. and, and doctrinal continuity. You're just undercut it, but you're still assuming it. Mm. And I said it comes to two sources. The other source is from the left. And this became particularly acute in the 20th century, among more liberal Baptists, for example, although it, it was it was 
in in some form present in some of the more liberal mainline denominations because so many of them are historically confessional in a way they couldn't deny. You know, they simply sought to relativize it by saying, you know, Jesus is our confession. Jesus is our creed. And uh, this worked its way into the 1963 Baptist faith and message, hmm. where Jesus Christ is the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted. Well, that relativized the entire Bible. And, you know, Nathan, I'll just speak bluntly. I was a seminary student sitting under professors who used that to relativize everything, including the doctrine of the Trinity. So, you know, in, in, in other words, um, the the confessionalism of Baptists becomes most uh, crucial when Baptists are theologically tested, and and that's why mm. you look at the Baptist faith and message in 1925, you know, 1963, 2000. You look at uh, you know the confessional conversation right now; it's because we're being tested. It's mm, good. It does seem to me, at least I've been trying to study uh, the, the confessions a little bit. I've a book I've turned in a book that'll be somewhat on confessions. Um, it seems like anybody who's sort of owned that no creed but the Bible or even kind of done away with confessionalism, that hasn't typically gone well for them as far as long-term faithfulness. You said in a podcast recently uh, that you did with Carl Truman that no rejection of confessionalism has worked. Can you sort of give a few examples behind the people who've sort of rejected this and kind of how that went for them? Yeah, well, let's go to Alexander Campbell. So, the, you know, you had Alexander Thomas Campbell, and, you know, I'm speaking to you from Kentucky, right here on the Kentucky frontier, uh, Cane Ridge Revival, all the rest. And uh, you had this restorationist movement. And, of course, uh, the, most modern Baptists don't know how that split the Baptist movement uh, here, especially uh, west of the Alleghenies. And uh, so you, you look at that and you recognize, okay, the argument's out there, no creed but the Bible. And, uh, you know, right here in Louisville, Kentucky, right now, you've got some uh, you know, conservative representations of uh, of the Campbellite tradition. Yeah, the Churches of Christ, and they still see say no creed but the Bible. Um, you know, many of them are non instrumental and all the rest, uh, culturally conservative. But that's a marginal group. Let's just be honest. Mm. Uh, by and large, what happened is that the Campbellite movement dissipated into the same theological liberalism that you saw everywhere else in mainline Protestantism. Mm. Uh, it's just uh, that that's just what happened. So if you don't have a creed, guess what? You can't fire anyone. You know, for uh, for heresy, you just you just can't, and, and unless you're just being dishonest, you have no creed but the Bible. Except I've got my unspoken creed that I'm going to pull out when we have to fire you. Uh, uh, you know, it's 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 just untenable. Uh, and 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 look, in the Southern Baptist tradition, the people who said no creed but the Bible, you know, quite frankly, now they're the people with the, you know twelve people in a building that seats a thousand with rainbow flags out front. I mean, we know yeah, exactly yeah. where this leads, and that is no exaggeration. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that is the rule, not the exception in terms of what's going on there. So in the summer, kind of after the SBC, I was at a church uh, doing sort of a, I was preaching there, but beforehand at a Sunday school, doing a kind of state of the SBC. And a guy asked me a question that said, uh, basically, how do you keep a denomination from drifting? Um, you know, you see this, and I, I, the, the main answer I could obviously come up with is you have to have a confession you actually believe and stay tethered to. In that same podcast with Carl Truman, you said the Reformation that happened at Southern Seminary would not have happened without a confession. Can you tell me, kind of can you unpack what you mean by that statement? How did the confession itself obviously help you to lead to, to the change that we saw at Southern Seminary? Yeah, absolutely. Well, at Southern, I mean, I'm just going to be real clear. This is just documented, you know, public evidence. We had people who were uh, teaching in, in, in the course of, say, the 50 years 
you know, prior to 1993 and then ongoingly, we have people who, if not denying the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, taught in ways that were clearly incompatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. Uh, we had, you know, open denials of, of biblical truth. And uh, what we did have, however, is that from the beginning, 1859, every professor has had to sign the abstract of principles, the confession of faith. And the language is specific. And, and the founders of Southern Seminary did not come up with this language. And I'll, I'll explain where it came from if you want to know. But uh, the language was must assign uh, uh, that uh, the professor will teach in accordance with and not contrary to all that is contained therein without hesitation or mental reservation. That's a formula. Uh, and I, I, I said you could ask me, I'll go ahead and tell you. At least approximately that came from Princeton. That's old Princeton. So yeah. the, 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 the founders of Southern Seminary just took the charter language from Princeton Theological Seminary. And you can trace that back further as well. Mm. So, in other words, <laughs> they had to learn how to require that language, you know, without hesitation or mental reservation, in accordance with and not contrary to all that is contained therein. You know, uh, yeah. that 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 and that was not just original, like you know, year three twenty five at Nicaea. The church had to learn: you've got to require this. It's positive confession without qualification. Mm. Yeah, and we and I'd like to get in towards the end. Maybe it does. It's not enough just to have that confession. Obviously, you have to actually believe it and hold people to it. Um, and they even might want to have some conversation around that with the BFNM two thousand. Yeah, and well, to use the word just to, just to say the the key distinction is whether the confession is documentary or regulative. Mm. If it's just for reference, uh, then you know, frankly, it's not going to matter. Yeah. But uh, Baptists, along with others, and we're not alone in this. Uh, long ago learned the only way it works is if it's regulative, if it regulates the institution, the church, the denomination. As we kind of stay in the general before we kind of move to some of the specifics, there, there's obviously some who say that confessions violate autonomy. Um, obviously, you would disagree with that. We're, we're Baptists. We hold to those principles Yeah, I mean, that, that's strongly. a stupid argument. I, I, I want to be really kind everywhere I can, but I'm sorry, that's just stupid. That's that that that's it's either intellectually dishonest or just completely unthoughtful because autonomy operates this way no church is coerced into cooperating with other churches in the southern baptist convention the southern baptist convention is the essence of a voluntary entity uh you don't even have to tell the sbc you leave when you leave right. you know you, you don't have to answer mail um you know so and and that's one of the reasons why our numbers are so inflated <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, right. honestly, uh, yeah, but, but right. you look at this. So in other words, autonomy would be if we were a hierarchical denomination with a police force that said your church is going to believe this and is going to require this. And you are not going to have that person to preach. The SBC has no such authority. The SBC right. is entirely responsive in this sense to, to judging whether or not fulfilling its own responsibility, a church is in friendly cooperation with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. Because it taken to its extreme, then that would mean the only distinctive we have is absolute free local autonomy, uh, which we don't, we would never say that. Do you have to believe? Well, we could also never do anything. Again, right, exactly. Yeah. Let's, let's just be honest. We can never do anything. Yeah, are, are we going to appoint a non-Trinitarian missionary? No. Are, 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 right. are we going to appoint a Mormon? You know, or you say, well, it has to be a member of a Southern Baptist church. Well, yeah, I'll just say that covers a lot of waterfront. <laughs> You know, and, and and that's why, you know, from the very beginning, there have had to be 
denominational policies that are more restrictive uh, than would have been the case, you know, a few decades before. You know, just right. to take the LGBTQ revolution, we have to ask questions now. No one had the vocabulary to ask 50 years ago. Hmm. Why? One more general question, and then I want to get specifically into the formation of Southern abstract principles. Why is it that Southern Baptists formed in 1845 and don't have a confession until 1925? And so uh, we've now had a confession for basically 100 years in, in the sense of an adopted one by the by the uh, convention, but we didn't necessarily have one for the first 60 years. Can you talk through kind of what or 80 years? What was behind that and why? Yeah, so if you go to uh, 1845, uh, they they said we take no creed as the basis of our cooperation. And and there were really, I guess, three things that worked there. Number one, all those churches were already a part of associations that were the primary regulative unit. And uh, those associations had confessions of faith, and, and they, they did operate in a regulative fashion. The second thing about the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 is that no one's really sure this is even a big deal. It's, it was not understood to be the primary identity of any of those churches. Wow. Like, I think it's fair to say that none of those churches in 1845, if they say, what kind of Baptist are you? They'd say, we're Southern Baptist. Uh, because mm-hmm. all they did was to establish, and, and I don't mean all as if this is insignificant, it was seismic. They created two missions organizations. That's it. And then they went home. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, the, the SBC will meet again. We'll, you know, to handle this. It was more established first as kind of a parachurch organization, you know, in in the sense of just we're going to establish two mission boards. So, and and the third thing is, look, theological liberalism hadn't happened. So the big issue theologically then was, how do you know a Baptist church? It wasn't like we had liberal Baptists and conservative Baptists. At that point, especially in the South, there just was virtually no threat of theological liberalism as we came to know it. and so. Yeah, 1845, we're talking about a different world. There's continuity with it. But, you know, the SBC became something that the found and and did, I mean, the key issue here is 1925. Right. And by the way, part of that's the change in American corporate law. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. But, you know, 1925, things had to be different because of the uh, corporate structure of the SBC. That's helpful. And, and Timothy George points out in his book on Baptist Confessions that all the de- they're called delegates, not messengers. In 1845, they all came from associations that had confessions, so it wasn't completely. I don't know of an association in the South that didn't have a confession. But yeah, well, let's then specifically let's get to the formation of Southern uh, historically, theologically, kind of what is happening at the formation of Southern that makes them adopt a confession at the outset of the institution. Um, you know, you've even highlighted the kind of some of the roots from Princeton, but talk us through just what's going on in that moment so that the founders of the seminary are saying we we should have something like the abstract principles. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. So what makes Southern Southern is that it was established in 1859 as the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, uh, and what's crucial to understand is that there wasn't a seminary in the South. Okay, now that's really key because the seminaries were in the North. And by that time, by 1859, theological liberalism was a well-known factor in the North. Mm-hmm. And so the people who founded Southern Seminary, you put Basil Manley Sr., James Pettigrew Boyce, people like that, especially on the table, uh, they knew what theological liberalism looked like in the North. Uh, you know, we had uh, Boyce who had been to Brown uh, with Francis Wayland and then had gone to Princeton. Mm-hmm. You had Basil Manley Jr., uh, one of the founding faculty, but his father was the founding uh, head of the Board of Trustees. 
um, and had been the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charleston. So, I mean, there, there is no more central, you know, family in that sense. Uh, he had gone to the Newton Theological Institute in Massachusetts, and it was a Baptist school, but he ran into theological liberalism in the 1840s and 50s. And so his dad told him, you just flee, get, leave Newton and go to Princeton. Better to study with Presbyterians, you know, who believe the Bible than with Baptists who don't. Yeah. And, uh, and what made the distinction for Princeton at the time, Old Princeton was, Old Princeton had a confession. It was a clearly confessional school. And uh, Boyce had also been, uh, uh, you know, at Princeton. And uh, especially important for Boyce was a professor by the name of Samuel Miller, who wrote a book on the use and utility of creeds and confessions. And uh, Miller, uh, for whom for, uh, for a very long time his name was on the chapel at Princeton, Miller's point was that uh, without a confession of faith, you, you have no ability to regulate the institution. So you, you basically have decided to embrace nihilism because that's exactly what you're going to get. And, and, you know, Boyce was completely schooled in that, so much so that in his Three Changes address uh, that was given, you know, 1856, before the seminary was established in 1859, uh, he basically was just citing Samuel Miller's uh, mm. using utility of, of creeds and confessions. And, uh, and all that language shows up in the charter and founding documents of Southern Seminary. So Basil Manley Sr., Basil Manley Jr., James Pettigrew Boyce, John Broadish, just all these, they had seen, they'd been in the North, they knew what theological liberalism looked like, they understood how it had already infected Northern institutions, many of which had already been lost, and they said, that's not going to happen here. Mm. So when it came to doing theological education, that's what's so important. So this is 14 years after the SBC was founded in 1865, in 1845, excuse me. So from after 1845, you go to 1859, guess what? We can't found a seminary without a confession of faith. We just, we're not going to do it. And it is regulative. It's so regulative, it uses the language which was approved by the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, put an exclamation point after that. But, the Special yeah. Education Convention of the Southern Baptist Convention approved this language. So anyone who says not confessional, look, the Southern Baptist Convention you know, approved this charter with this language. We're not going to do theological education without a confession, period. Yeah, yeah he said there was a crisis in Baptist doctrine approaching uh, in those lectures, I think, the three years Absolutely. Before. That, that was yeah. in his three changes address, yeah. Yeah. So trace for us then— I I want to get back to the to the BFNM itself. You talked about. Um, I'm just going to ask a broad question. You can go with it wherever you want, and then we'll get specifically to 2000. But trace for us up to 1925. Why a BFNM? We've we've done some podcasts on this. So you don't need to go too deep into it, but trace up to 1925. That's a nice to kind 60. warning. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> up to 25, 63, <laughs> and then 2000. So yeah. in 25 and 63, again, what historically theologically is going on to make those uh, confessions necessary? Uh, I may ask some follow-up questions, but just kind of a broad question on those two. Well, I'm going to defy your uh, your kind suggestion and simply say I can't start in 25. I got to start in 1914, 1919. Yep. Uh, in 1914 and in 1919, the Southern Baptist Convention had to take steps towards adopting a confession, and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, the second time the SBC had to do this, um, it had partly to do with uh, the context of World War One. And what was then called the Great War, and understanding, you know, what kind of confessional basis uh, the SBC would or would not cooperate with other denominations, even in, say, the appointment and commissioning of chaplains in the military. 
1914, 1919, it wasn't enough. Uh, the SBC kind of got, you know, proto-confessions. They're fascinating little documents, by the way. But by the time you get to 1925, you also have the evolution controversy. The fundamentalist modernist controversy lands in the SBC. You now can't deny it. And, and by the way, it wasn't an illusion. It was really a problem. Yeah. And uh, it was the president of this school, Southern Seminary, E.Y. Mullins, who chaired that committee and, and was president of the SBC, who, uh, you know, led in the development. It was, a, it was a derivation of the New Hampshire Confession. So, right, you know, right. a very well-established Baptist confession. And uh, look, 1925 is crucial for the SBC. I, I, I dropped a little footnote and don't mean to frustrate you here. But in 1925, several things happened at once, the convention in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and a part of it was that American corporate law had changed. And so the SBC, which was operating on a charter granted in 1845 in Georgia, now has to have an office. <laughs> you now have to have a corporate entity that can represent you in court or, or, or take mm -hmm. action, can buy property, you know, or, or do whatever. And so that's why the executive committee of the SBC was was founded in 1925. What became before it was nothing. <laughs> so, right. so all of a sudden now you got you have an executive committee. It's got an address. It's going to have an executive secretary. You know, it's going to be there, there's going to be all of a sudden this is a complete change. Same year they adopted the Baptist faith and message. So this is this is early you know 20th century America where things are happening very fast, and uh, Southern Baptists did not want to find evolutionist teaching in our schools. And, and the state, several state colleges and universities, guess what? They were there. Right. And uh, that, that became very clear. Mm. So the SBC adopted the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925. It was necessary. It wasn't enough. That didn't, that didn't quell all the issues. But without it, there would have been no confession of faith for the SBC to say, here's what we actually believe. Mm. Yeah. Then 63, uh, obviously, there's the kind of the Ralph Elliott controversy, all the stuff going on there. Just give right. us, uh, Herschel Hobbs is a Southern grad who kind of helps head up uh, the 63 committee. Give it any insight into what's going on in that sort of cultural moment, and then we'll head up to 2000. Yeah, so by 1963, in the denominations of the North, you've got theological liberalism that is clearly winning. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I will not trace all these footnotes, but, uh, you know, the, the Northern Presbyterian Church, uh, the, the Methodist Church in the North, the Episcopal Church in the North, many of those had reunited by, uh, most of them had reunited by, by the 1950s and 60s. But the point is, that reuniting and all the rest, it basically institutionalized theological liberalism in those denominations. And, you know, it, the left keeps moving left. It, that, that's the way it works. It, 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 it marches on. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so by the time you get to 1960 in the SBC, any major pastor, any major denominational leader knows, you know, um, those other denominations basically are all going off the map. And, and, and we don't want that to happen. Right. Then we had problems in our schools. And, and so you mentioned the Ralph Elliott controversy at Midwestern Seminary at the time, very young seminary, huge controversy, basic denial of the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, and a kind of a non-supernatural understanding of the Pentateuch right. itself, and the book of Genesis in particular. And, um, and, and with absolutely no acknowledgement of the theological ramifications that were going to flow from that. I mean, you start, you read Genesis the way he read it, you're not going to read John 3.16 the way the church is read, you know, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, and, and you can draw that line. 
And so the SPC wanted to say no to that. But the SPC was in no panic about theological liberalism in its ranks. You know, this is an exception. This is this is an isolated problem. Uh, and look, the SBC had just, you know, this is less than 10 years after a million more in 54. The SBC is just going. It's exploding. The South is exploding. Institutions are exploding. Congregations are exploding. You know, it was during that time that I saw a report in the SBC saying, you know, we've got like 70 churches with over 500 in attendance. You know, yeah. you have to realize what a giant thing that was in 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 that era. So you know that it was mostly a, a, a situation of rural churches and county seat churches, right. but you had everything going and blowing. And and then all you have that you have the influx of all these ideas and uh, and frankly some bad hires. Mm. And so by 1963, now Herschel Hobbs is made the chairman of the committee. I think the convention made a massive mistake because the idea was, let's just appoint the presidents of the state conventions as the committee. Right. Now, the problem with that was nobody was qualified upon, frankly, even an interest in the question. And, and, and that, that, is, that is a dangerous thing. Uh, right. But Hobbes' leadership and all the rest, it was pretty representative, I think, of, of, of you know, Southern Baptists. That, but... But it really, it, there just wasn't a lot of theological input into the uh, the process. And Herschel Hobbes, who was a very dear friend to me from the time I was 18 years old, so I'm speaking with great, great respect here. Uh, Dr. Hobbes, one of the titanic figures of the SBC in the 20th century, he, uh, he did not want the Baptist faith and message uh, to be too restrictive or too loose. And so a lot of it was his personal judgment. The worst thing that happened in 1963 is that a basically new orthodox principle was established in it on, in, the, in the article in Scripture where Jesus is the criterion by which the Scripture is to be judged. Well, that mm. was the Christological exit, it was called in the North, which was, okay, I can say that in light of Jesus, I don't have to believe in, uh, you know, the 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 God told Israel to you know make war on the Hittites uh, you know uh, yeah. I I don't have to believe that that God spoke to Moses in a burning bush I can just say you know or you know on moral issues this is where this is where you fast forward now you have people saying in the love of Jesus I'm going to deny everything the Scripture says about sexual sin or under uh, right. binary you know et cetera and and so all that was there and 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 that was key to new orthodoxy that was Bultmanian and Bardian although mm-hmm. Bart would never have approved of an awful lot of what was done in his name the fact is is that the idea of 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 uh of, of of you have a criterion you have a Jesus abstracted from scripture who can now nullify scripture that was a disaster and and it should have been it, southern baptists should be horrified that the sbc ever adopted such language now there are other things we need to be horrified the sbc ever adopted but that one's pretty close to us you know i was yeah. i was alive then but I, mm-hmm. contrary to conspiracy theories i was not at the sbc in 1964 you weren't there. <laughs> so that obviously leads the the way to some of the things that happen in the institutions that then get turned around yeah. 80s 90s leads us up to 2000 so you're on the 2000 committee, um, play a major part there. Historically, theologically, what are the key factors that lead uh, to the formation of that committee? Well, uh, there are three or four things that are giant. And, and one of them is that statement, the 63 statement, 
you know, about Jesus, the criterion by which the scripture is to be judged. That, that, that's issue number one. The second thing was uh, exclusivity of the gospel, you know, do, is, that, is that declared clearly enough? Um, so it wasn't as if Southern Baptists had to rethink our Trinitarian affirmations in 2000. It's, uh, you know, w- w- where have problems arisen that, that demand our attention? So uh, before 2000, uh, just by a few years, the SBC had added an article in the family. And uh, that's because, you know, these things are now very much in the public square. And, you know, Southern Baptists are going to split over these issues. We did. So it's not like you might. We did. You know, mm-hmm. uh, churches that wanted to go in an LGBTQ affirming direction had to leave the SBC. And um, and and so the 2000 uh, uh, committee had a responsibility to update the entire, you know, Baptist faith and message. So 37 years after uh, the Baptist faith and message, 1963, which was 37 years after the adoption in 1925. So evidently 37 years is some kind of magic number. Um, so you look at that and you recognize, okay, so there weren't many major changes. Right. The major changes that were made, uh, and of course now where the conversation is, the office of pastor is limited to men is qualified by scripture. That that was put in. Why was it put in? Because Southern Baptists didn't have to say that in 1963. They would have looked at you cross-eyed if you said you needed to put that in. Uh, but by, you know, 2000, oh. That was an issue Southern Baptists, here's what's key, had decided to divide over. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I want to ask some more questions. Overwhelmingly, yeah. Southern Baptists had decided to divide over that question. So part of my frustration with the current conversation is you realize in 2000, Southern Baptists knew exactly what they were doing. You know, you have the CBF churches, as they would later be largely Alliance churches. They had women who were preaching, holding the teaching office. Uh, by the way, the footnote there. Not that many of them. I mean, even right now, though the, the, those churches still, you know, are the, the frustration is on on the part of many women is they're you know they're as one wrote not too long ago, they still want to call a man. If they don't call a man, it's because they're at some desperate point, and you know, by the time a woman woman gets there, there you know forty people in the room. Um, and and obviously there's some exceptions, but the the but the point is, Southern Baptists decided to divide over this by the time you get to the two thousand. Baptist faith and message. And here's something else. It wasn't controversial on the committee at all. Mm. It, it, so I, I, I'm, I'm not speaking out of school here. I'll just tell you, everybody in that room understood. The only question is how we get at the right language here. That's, that's the only question. Are there, uh, did y'all record those conversations? Will those be something that's released later? Like, or are there even minutes and notes of those that are available of the c- conversation among the committee? Oh, I've got my notes. They sit behind well, <laughs> where, I'm st- where I, I am right now. Uh, I, I'm I don't thinking think like peace committee tapes or anything like that. No, okay. no, no, yes, no. Yeah. I, I'm pretty certain that, that there was there was nothing recorded. If so, I, I don't think I know about it. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm being a little, making a little light of this. No, I, I don't believe any of that was recorded. I don't think. Uh, but, you know, yeah. this is 20-something years ago, so. Right, right, yeah. Any, um, just as you, any like fun anecdotes about time with that committee or anything just with the makeup of it or any kind of, you know, illustrations or stories you could share that were just enjoyable in working on that uh, confession? Uh, (laughs) You asked this knowing, you just put me on the spot, didn't you? I don't necessarily know of any. I just, you know, when you're in those sort of meetings, there's always probably fun stories. Maybe there's nothing to to share. And no, I'll 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 tell this. So this is, and I'm not going to put a name on it, and other than my own, because this is at my expense. Okay. Okay. So 
I was kind of operating as clerk of of the, you know, I, I was the one who kept all the records. And so, yeah, by the way, that that's why they're sitting behind me. I'm the one that kept all the records and, uh, and I'm the one that, that had the ER document, so to speak, you know, that, mm. uh, yeah. that we're working on. And, uh, and we, we had laptops back then there, uh, you know, pay limitations of what you got now, but you know, that was, it was just basically all on that laptop for a very long time. And, you know, we had to make adjustments and all the rest, but what would happen is that we would, we would end a meeting and say, okay, we're going to you know, say, we've made this much progress and we're going to pray about it. We're going to go home. We're going to do our work. We're going to come back. And the first thing the next meeting is, we're going to look at what we did the previous meeting and say, are we settled with that? Adrian yep. Rogers came up with that system. It was genius. It, it really was. Uh, so mm-hmm. you do something, you spend hours and days together, you go home, you work, you come back, and you say, do we really mean that? So at one point, I, I, raised, I, 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 I raised the question and simply said, you know, uh, I, I'm ready for any suggestions or anything because I'm putting the stuff up on the screen. And um, I'll simply say, a member of the committee said, I wonder if we really meant to say this. And he gave a line. Mm. Okay, well, we really did mean to say it. Okay. And he said, you know, there's some Southern Baptists who might believe, and by the way, this is not a controversial issue. So don't worry, no controversial issues. Just, you know, this is way down deep in the weeds. And I simply said, and, you know, I was, I was kind of preoccupied with, you know, just the mechanics of keeping the text, keeping the notes, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, theologian in the room, I simply said, well, you know, brother, I don't think I know a single Southern Baptist who would actually hold the position you articulate. <laughs> and, and, and our eyes met and I realized, my bad, <laughs> I'm talking to one Southern Baptist. <laughs> oh, man. It was just oh. one of those moments you go. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but you know what, the rest of the committee and I, I actually, uh, uh, um, dear friend sitting next to me with a pen in his hand, jabbed it in my leg as if to say, you really stepped in the puddle here. And, uh, and, and I had, but it was glorious. It was wonderful. Good spirit. The committee yeah, simply is. said, yeah, that is what is exactly what we meant to say. And uh, it just went on. But it's one of those moments where, and, and I want to tell you how great Southern Baptists can be. Okay, this is how wonderful yeah. Southern Baptists can be. So the, you, you say that's a tense moment. It ended up being a very nice moment and, and a clarifying moment. But, you know, about uh, 10 o'clock at night that night, I got a phone call from that man who simply said, uh, you know, why don't we get a cup of coffee and talk about this? It was just, it was just, I mean, there's, mm, I just I can't think of a more God-honoring way for Christian people either that's to good. talk through some of these things. Mm, that's good. Well, that brings us then to the present hour. I'm going to ask kind of questions that have arisen in the last few years because of uh, the confession and then some things we've added to our constitution. It does seem though, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Mullins, there are some people who don't think he's strong enough on, you know, the evolution question in 25. Obviously there's this. I'm one of those, by the way. Yeah. Right. Right. And then there's this ambition yeah. in 63. So it seems like not dealing with an issue in the present moment led to another confession, which then led to another confession uh, and so then 2000, there's, you know, obviously these these additions that Baptists seem clear on, they're, they're ready to divide over. So let me just ask some of the kind of objections and questions about the present hour. Um, how is the confession supposed to kind of govern and regulate us? It, it, we say in there, these are beliefs surely held among us. So there's, there's a reason why we say that. Um, but has, up until 2000, did the confession govern the entities? And has the confession ever governed who can send messengers to the convention? Okay, make sure I don't drop any of that. Uh, sure. I, I would say that the confession has operated, first of all, as a way of 
making confession before the world of what it is we believe. So that's that's the first thing. So yeah, you take go back to Baptist, uh, the first and second London confessions, seventeenth uh, century. They, I know that's why they did it because they said that's why they did it. Uh, right. You know, there are people who said these Baptists are holding to. As a matter of fact, that's key here because in this first point, because there are people who are saying these Baptists hold to aberrant beliefs. And, you know, the most important thing about the first and second London confessions was not the Baptist part, but the continuation of Orthodox Christianity part. Right. Right. That, 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 that's the question they were answering. But, and of course, we they stand in line with these other we stand in line with these other. Protestant brothers, uh, we d- differ on this. These right, Baptists, exactly. We stay in the same line. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And by the time you get to the Second London Confession, I mean you got a lot of Westminster right there staring you right. in the face. Uh, so that 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 was uh, the first thing to to confess before the world, to advertise to the world what it is we believe. The second thing in the SBC, in particular, is to govern the life of the institutions. So, uh, you know, honestly, uh, they didn't say this in twenty five. They didn't say this in sixty three. They should have. And and even in even in in the year two thousand, you know, Adrian Rogers was chairman of the, of the committee. Said, "Look, we don't have any power to tell the board of trustees at X seminary they must adopt this." Uh, it was really clear, though. And I'm going to be honest: if X seminary wanted cooperative program inclusion, they better adopt the Baptist Faith and Message two thousand. And so right. everybody got in line real quick. And and by the way, it was it was necessary. I mean, you just you just couldn't operate without saying yes. This is this is what we hold to, uh, and and the third thing is you say is it was it ever used to seek messengers? Well, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that uh, the SBC, because of new challenges, and I mean you could say old challenges continue, but the new challenges were in particular um, those related to the LGBTQ issues, for one thing, and there were other issues, however, that also had to do with, uh, uh, I would say, more subtle actions in which their churches were threatened with, there's going to be a challenge to you. And some of that was, uh, I, I remember in the, the, uh, the, the 1980s, especially the early 1990s, had to do with uh, universalism. Mm. You know? And basically those churches, that's when the CBF is pulling out, you know, you have churches that are going. Uh, and so I think Southern Baptist knew even in 2000, there's still a sifting out, you know, that's going to take place there. But then again, the the uh, the fact is that under the pressure of these doctrinal questions, uh, the SBC, by force of circumstances, has had to say, you know, going back to 1845, it's in friendly cooperation with uh, and contributing to the causes of the Southern Baptist Convention, defining in friendly cooperation. And so, you know, obviously, when it came to, say, Saddleback, we'll just name the, the situation. At the SBC this past year, the SBC overwhelmingly simply said, a church that has a woman preaching on Sunday morning is not in friendly cooperation with the SBC. And, and you know, we're, we're not angry about that, but, you know, we're, we're also not unclear about that. Hmm. Helpful. So in, in 2000, it obvious, it's obvious coming out of what we came out of in the 80s and 90s and even further back that we've already had talked about that we were going to become more confessional. Um, in 2015, we add to the, in that, in that, yeah, you know, in that vein, in 2015, we add the phrase "closely identifies with the convention statement of faith" right. into the Constitution. Why did we and, say and, "closely"? And that, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I should have let you finish. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, just why do we say "closely identifies" rather than "affirms" the convention's adopted statement of faith? 
I don't remember the whole. Uh, I mean, I was there, but I don't even remember kind of how the discussion took place. To be okay, honest. so it's a distinction. So I'm I'm just I'm not saying that I totally am pleased with the distinction. But you ask for this distinction, I'll tell you what it is. It's because yeah. affirms requires a congregational action closely identifies with does not. Mm. And yeah. and so I mean, frankly, if we had to re-enroll all the churches in the SBC by some positive congregational action related to the Baptist faith and message. I mean, again, that's just unwieldy. Mm-hmm. And it's just not yeah. the way the SBC works as we have the churches that have been with us and cooperating with us and sending messengers. You know, but it is kind of the way it works, honestly, uh, in terms of new churches coming into the SBC. So that that is one of the official evidences of what it means to, you know, be a, in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. Here's a statement of faith that, Again, expresses belief surely held among us is the language we we use right. in the in the preamble of that. So there's this committee that's been put together um, to talk about and and to think through uh, a cooperation committee on what closely identifies means. A corollary issue to that, not one and the same, but is kind of running on parallel train tracks that may cross at some point, uh, is the law amendment uh, that basically would add into the Constitution that to be in friendly cooperation, you you would affirm only qualified men as pastors of any kind. What are your thoughts about um, the law amendment and and sort of should that go in the Constitution? Uh, how should we be thinking through uh, that as pertains particularly to uh, our statement of faith? You know, the way denominations work, the way assemblies work is, uh, you know, you have to you have to work within the polity to try to state as clearly as possible and as efficiently as possible how are you going to define terms? Hmm. And the in friendly cooperation with is absolutely essential because frankly, that's what holds us together, you know, the, our, our cooperation. And uh, so the, the issue is the SBC can't function if every annual meeting we've got to spend, you know, 24 hours of business sessions trying to figure out what it means as to whether this church in the circumstances is in friendly cooperation or not. When some kind of concern is raised about a church, some kind of appeal is made to the credentials committee or to the convention itself or whatever mechanism the convention may adopt. And uh, so it's sort of like Occam's razor. I mean, it's just a way of saying, you know, this is just a clear statement that the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. And and so, you know, we're not going to tell you how you organize your children's ministry. We're just going to tell you the word pastor is reserved for men. and. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how the SBC is going to function getting on with our business of mission boards and theological seminaries and trying to reach the world and the nation. I, I don't know how we're going to do that if every year we got to figure out what those words mean anew. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. this issue is not going to go away. And and quite frankly, there's been an awful lot of misrepresentation and maybe all over the place. So let's just say you know, what we need is the truth here. But if you just take some of the churches that are well represented in the SBC, even, you know, in this conversation, some of them are actually in pretty radical disagreement with others of them uh, on this issue. So this it, it is not a smokescreen. There, there's a real disagreement here. And obviously, I, I'm, I take sides. I'm, I'm very much for the law amendment. Um, you know, the timing uh, is what the timing is. And, and so I would not have uh, orchestrated uh, the law amendment coming at the same time that the commission dealt with Saddleback. Uh, dealing with Saddleback proves that, you know, the, this is where the convention is convictionally, you know, when you have a woman teaching on Sunday morning, et cetera, that's clear. 
Uh, but you know, in God's sovereignty, that's when that's when all this came together. And uh, you know, I I'm very clear that I believe the law amendment should have passed and should pass, and I hope overwhelmingly, so that Southern Baptists can say, "Here's what we believe on the basis of Scripture," and and we can move on. I, I will just say, if 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 there's something else that happens, the issue is not going to go away. It's just going to get messier and messier. Mm. Yeah. Let me, uh, a couple of things that, that have been brought up in, in light of that. So, um, you know, the, the statements changed in 2000. The Office of Pastors Limited Men is qualified by Scripture. Some have said that the committee in 2000 only meant, uh, you know, which included you, that only meant senior pastors. Is that how it was understood in the room? Was that your position? Has your position changed on that, that it's not meaning just senior pastor? Uh, how was that being thought through in 2000? So I will simply say that we were clear that we're talking about the office of pastor and and intentionally did not put in the word senior pastor. And uh, so I, I, I will simply state, I, I, we were not careless with words. We knew what we were doing. It's the office of pastor it is limited to men as qualified by scripture. I think it's also fair to say that in the year 2000, we were not even looking at some of the arrangements that are now of controversy today. So, you know, there may have been a preaching team in 2000, but that was that was not that was, that was not a major issue of discussion in the denomination. And the, the the picture was clearly you have a pastor and then you have others, and uh, and so the issue is the office. The office is someone teaching, is someone fulfilling the pastoral office. And I think the problem right now is you have some churches that are saying. Because there are some saying, you know, so we believe in women pastors. So I, I think that's incompatible with the SBC. And I'll I'll take that to the floor and anywhere I can to make that point. Uh, there are others who are saying, that's not what we mean by pastor. And, you know, here's where this is simply a matter of cooperation. You know, it, I, I, we don't have any investigative force to go to those churches. We don't have any police force. But you know what? If you're using the word pastor and you mean something else, you know, are, are we really going to have the SBC? have to do a formal investigation and come up with it. Are, there, are we going to put on the credentials committee? You got to decide how in the world this word's being used. Um, I think, I think that's a big issue. And, and, you know, frankly, right. the, those who are putting the pushback on this, when, when you ask them what their actual argument is, their argument just to me looks worse and worse. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, no, some of these people actually do mean like pastor and, uh, and that's very much a part of, you know, their their uh, their congregational identity and all the rest. Well, you know, well, then we're right back where we were in, you know, 1999. That's the reason mm-hmm. why there was a Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And so we need to be very clear. This is what we mean. This is why we use this word. Give the Credentials com- Committee marching orders in that way. Uh, is that what you think would kind of bring the most clarity in this situation? Well, I, I, yes, yes. I mean, that's the point. Yep. And, yep. and so— uh, and, and and there's something else, and this is something that I think a lot of people are missing. A lot of people are missing, including some who are even pushing back on the law amendment. There's a precedent set, undoubtedly, by the bylaw revision the, that the law amendment would represent. Okay? There, there, no doubt it's a precedent. But you know, it's a pretty high bar of a precedent. You know, it's, someone's got to write, propose a bylaw amendment. It has to be made as a motion. It has to be approved by the messengers, and then come back another year. You know, Two-third, those yeah. who were saying, "Well, you know," and frankly, I think it's a form of paranoia saying, "Well, if 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 we're drawing the line there, we can draw it here. We can draw it here." We're, we're, well, you know, 
The SBC, by the way, can do that at any meeting period, you know, in terms of deciding it's the messengers it will see right. on whatever basis it chooses at that convention. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. But you know what? I, I, I think a lot of the criticisms of the law amendment are actually missing the point. This requires yeah. the convention to seat twice. I should say be seated at two thirds. Yeah. Yeah. And then have a two thirds majority twice. So you know what? Uh, that's a that's a pretty significant statement. And by the way, the SBC is free to act on this issue without the law amendment passing, just as it was in, you know, in the 2023 convention. And here's something else. You know, again, people just don't know Baptist polity. The polity of the Southern Baptist Convention is that no convention may bind any future convention, period. So, you know what? You can have a task force that brings some massive, you know, suggestion as to how the convention can handle this. I, I'm not dismissing the task force. I'm simply saying nothing can bind the SBC within its own charter and bylaws from acting in any year on the, as it sees best. Yeah, that's good. You know, the, and, just... and by the way, those bylaws are in such a way that you can't, like, close an institution in a year. You know, in other words, it's right. a, those are very it's a high bar. Yeah. Fire yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. A couple more questions. I'll get you out of here. You've been very, you know, very generous with your time. Some are saying, okay, why then? And I, part of the answer is the 2015 addition of Closely Identifies. But why did it take a church like Fern Creek 23 years to be kind of deemed not in friendly cooperation uh, since the BFNM was, you know, obviously changed in 2000? What would you say to why it took, you know, that many years as far as, removing CBF type churches and churches like Fern Creek, which may not have been CBF. I don't know if they were or not. Uh, I don't know that I can speak to that directly either. I, I, I think, I think so. But I, okay. I would say, first of all, because most of those churches just left the SBC, you know, mm. yeah. I think by their words, they, you know, shook the dust off their feet and, and left, you know, because they, they were adamant about wanting to associate with other churches. Um, I think even here in Louisville, a lot of people never thought of Fern Creek Baptist Church as a Southern Baptist church. Right. And so, okay. uh, you know, I here on the on this campus, you would not have thought so, right? You know, yeah. and so you look at this and you realize, well, it's it's taken some time for some of these things to come. You know, I think in in the state a state like Virginia, by the way, there are a lot, a lot more churches, and you also have another problem, and that is that, um, you know, messengers show up at the or or those who are elected by the churches as messengers show up at a Southern Baptist convention. And it's based upon, you know, again, friendly cooperation with and contributing to the causes of. So here's one of the problems of the SBC. And this is that you you asked me because this is going to get me riled up. The SBC doesn't know how many churches it has right now. Now, I know, right. you know, publicity wants to say we have 40,000 churches or whatever, you know, whatever the number they want to use now, 48,000, you know, whatever. We don't know how many churches we have. We, we don't. We know how many churches we had last time that were qualified to send messengers. We don't know. We don't know the next time. And in many of these, like CBF churches, even without the, a lot of people, without congregational action, you had, like I know of a church where you had an older couple who was giving like $5,000 a year to Lottie Moon. That's an enormous right. gift, by the way. God bless them. Keep giving it. But that all of there a sudden qualified... That qualified their liberal church to be, uh, you know, uh, the, to send messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention until the SBC says, oh, wait, whoa, just a minute. No, no, that that's not the way this works. So I, I, I hope that makes sense. But I mean, yeah, it does. You, yeah. you have a completely um, opaque system here. You don't know who's going to show up, you know, saying, you know, we had a couple in our church that gave 
to the Annie Armstrong. So, you know, we're now, or, you know, even to the cooperative program. Right. So yeah. another church that I happen to know of where, uh, you know, I, I was, I was reached by a new young pastor, wonderful young godly pastor. He went to a church and he said, I just found out that, that members of the church can tick off on their offering, whether it goes to the CBF or the SBC. Mm. And, you know, and I, wonderful pastoral concern here, and he's led them to do exactly the right thing. But, but the point is, you know, I think both sides are probably surprised that the church was identified the other way, you know? So yeah. it, it takes yeah. a while for this kind of thing. And, and again, Baptist, you know, it's, it's like uh, Will Rogers said, um, um, I'm a Democrat. I don't belong to any organized political party. Okay. I, I get that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the way it is with the SBC. And and it's obviously not true. The Democrats do have an organization. It just doesn't look that way at times, <laughs> especially, you know, back then. And, and the same thing is true of the SBC. We actually do have an organization. We have to, we, we, we have yeah. to work this out, but you know, a lot of it we work out because we have to in this moment. Mm. Two quick questions. Sorry. Uh, so with the revision in 23, 20- 23 to the office of pastor adding elder overseer some are arguing that makes the law amendment unnecessary because now with closely identifies and that if the credentials committee were to or to be given clear directives closely identifies means closely and not loosely uh with those revisions which would kind of say pastor of any kind would that be enough to be able to remove churches that have female pastors of any kind it would be Thoughts enough to remove female churches that have female pastors of any kind, but it would require a lengthy investigation, qualification of terms, deciding whether the church uses the term elder, and if it uses it or not, whether or not this person actually is operating as an elder or overseer. Oh, by the way, I'm very comfortable with that language. That's what I'd hoped for in 2000, but anyway, I had nothing to do with it coming to the fore in 2023. But the point is, the law amendment is about saving the convention from having to do a lengthy investigation about what some church means by some title. I mean, again, I don't care how many churches we have in that respect. It's too many churches to operate that way. So it's basically a way of saying, you know, those who oppose it basically are saying, we really don't want to have to decide on this issue because Mm. that, but, but by the way, that's not going to work. I'll just promise you that's not going to work. Because messengers are going to bring challenges to churches regardless of whether the law amendment passes or not. It's just a question of how efficiently the SBC intends to deal with this. Last question. Uh, so some, this is also coming from corners that would push back on the law amendment. They were saying that if you start to now disfellowship churches on the basis of their violation of the BFNM article on the pastoral office, should it then also then lead us to disfellowship churches that may violate the statement on, for instance, open communion or even churches that may have deacons functioning as elder pastor, would they then be out of line uh, with the Baptist Faith Message 2000 with the even the addition in 23? Would that then mean they are violating and no longer closely identifying and should be deemed not in friendly cooperation? If you make the argument and the SBC adopts it, then yes. I mean, frankly, you could do this on anything. Mm. You know, you could say, you know, a church that doesn't have a wooden pulpit. You know, obviously— uh, there'd be a lot of them these days. But, you know, I, I, I'm just saying, look, the SBC is a sovereign body. Whatever a majority or supermajority the messengers are determined to do over time, they can get it done. And and so I'm not saying they should. They shouldn't on, on the pulpit furniture. But my point is, you know, you can't tell the SBC is a sovereign body. It can't do what a supermajority of its messengers want to do. If they want to require everyone to hold to young earth creationism, 
or to, you know, a pre-wrath rapture of the church, the SBC, if there are enough messengers show up and say, that's how we're going to define friendly cooperation. If a supermajority does it a sufficient number of times, guess what? That's what you got. So I, I just want to be honest about that. But I'm making the point both ways. So if the issue of open communion or, you know, pastors as elders or elders as, I mean, uh, deacons as elders or elders as deacons or, you know, if you, any of that confusion or all the rest, if two-thirds of them, if a motion is made to revise the bylaws and uh, a sufficient number of messengers, a, a, a supermajority, two years in a row adopt it, then guess what? That's now the basis of cooperation uh, because the SBC acted. But even without that, at any given convention, anyone can raise an issue. And so I just want to say everyone should calm down a little here. The blood pressure should go down here. I, I've known the SBC for uh, a very, very, very long time. And I can simply you tell the, you, you're, it, it, you're at the 1963. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I actually, I actually was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a consultant to the 1963 <laughs> convention uh, from the sandbox with my Tonka trucks. Uh, no, no, I mean, you just look at this. So the other thing is, just remember, any messenger can bring a motion not to seek messengers of any other church anytime till Jesus comes. Or the SBC dissolves, and I'm not suggesting those are coterminous. Uh, but you know, all, all I'm saying is, so everybody should chill just a little bit because I don't care what you say the SBC can't do, and 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 won't do. The SBC can turn around 15 minutes later and do what you just got some messengers to say you won't do, and and so I hope that makes sense. I just no, I just I, I I was against this task force. I I I, I spoke against it on the floor in Anaheim. Uh, didn't have the opportunity in, in New Orleans, but I, I think it's a very, very bad idea uh, because I think it implies that a task force in this respect can tell the SBC for the future what it's going to do about these issues. That's not to say it can't do some good work. So if it does some good work, I'm going to be thankful, like in clarifying the work of the uh, credentials committee, et cetera. But right. I'm, I'm opposed to any group saying that the SBC is going to say up front, we believe in parts of our confession, not so much other parts. Uh, we're going to define in friendly cooperation in terms of articles, you know, four, five, six, two, but but not this. Or, or uh, you know, just saying we're kind of giving up on confessionalism. I'll just say this is, by the way, the stupidest moment in the history of the Christian church for any responsible Christian body to say, you know, we're just going to let down our theological guard, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, of, it's not it's not an intelligent question anymore to ask where that goes. Well, I think part of the, you know, people are saying, well, if this amendment gets put in, what's the next thing people are going to do and kind of worried about a shift that way? I don't think. Yeah, well, the next thing people are going to do is the next thing people are going to do. The next thing the convention does is whatever the convention does next. So in other words, that's I just I think there were people who were saying, you know, if we adopt this confession in 1925. The next thing you know is we're going to have a cardinal. We're going to have a. College of Bishops, we're going to have all this. You know what? Uh, that that has never happened. So uh, you know, the parade of the horribles, to use Supreme Court language, um, you know, it's just it just it's not effective. Uh, and and by the way, the SBC again tends to resent in its meetings being told what it can't do, right? When it can't. Well, I think they need to be asking some of those that are pushing back need to be asking the equal question on the other side. If we don't speak with clarity now, what will be the next issue on the other hand that we're going to have to be fighting over from the floor? 
uh, rather than being very clear about what both we believe and also our confessions say. And so, uh, Dr. Mueller, I, I very much appreciate your time, just even for years of talking through confessions and confessionalism and uh, just helping us think through both the 2000 and the current moment. Uh, again, thanks for joining. Yeah, and I'm glad to be with you. And I think it's really important that we keep this conversation irenic, but honest. And and you did. And I, I appreciate that greatly. But I mean, even to people who may, you know, disagree with where I am or or uh, I may disagree with where they are, uh, I really have enormous trust in, and confidence in the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention and in the churches of the convention to settle these things out rightly over time. So well, I, I intend to move forward in that confidence. Me too. This is why our blood pressure can go down. Uh, thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.